The following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. At the end of the last rewind, I announced a video about the 1990s Fox cartoon Spider-Man the Animated Series. That will be a top 10 episodes list, and it'll be the very next rewind. But I decided to sneak in a review of the direct-to-video movie based on the second Lego Batman video game, since the Lego Batman movie is in theaters as I'm recording this. It's an oddball movie, all the cutscenes from Lego Batman 2, with new scenes to fill out the gameplay portions and make it a cohesive 70-minute animated movie. The box calls in a movie, so I have to review it here, and when the heck else would I get around to this? Yes, Lego Batman the movie is a totally different project from the Lego Batman movie. They're not even about the same Batman. Although that movie is a somewhat similar arc and lesson given layers and character dimension. Before Will Arnett's Lego Batman, a total parody of the Dark Knight from the mind of a child playing with toys, we have this version, a Batman that's inherently funny because he's an angsty, broody minifig, but who's as dead serious as the comic book version. They are two distinct characters, one the arbiter of all things cool, who plays up the dark vigilante persona as a gimmick to perpetuate his own self-proclaimed awesomeness, and the other is, well, just traditional broody loner Batman in a goofy Lego world. Lego and Telltale continue to give us lots of material with this Batman. To date, he's been in three Lego Batman video games, four direct-to-video Justice League movies, a Netflix short, and he's one of the three main characters in Lego Dimensions story mode. I've often said there are a hundred variations on Batman's character, and no version is necessary more valid than another. And I love that one company is proving that point by using two totally different variations simultaneously and enjoying great success with both. And it's impressive that LEGO has created two comedic Batmans that play for different sorts of comedy. There's the straight-up parody of Batman, the one who throws a million batarangs and says first try when he finally hits his mark, and the Lego adaptation of the world's greatest detective, who always hits his mark on the first try. There's a scene in this movie where Batman takes out three bad guys with one batarang, a la Xeno with her chakram, and grabs it just before it hits Robin. Will Arnett's Batman pretends he's Troy Baker's Batman, and he's funnier because I've seen the no-nonsense Batman translated to Lego. It's nuts to consider how recent this movie and game were released, and how much LEGO Batman history, there's a phrase I never thought I'd utter, there's been since then. LEGO has produced what feels like a decade's worth of material in three years, and they've kept up an impressive standard of quality. I'm not sure if the games and this movie are technically in the same continuity as the LEGO Justice League movies, but there's nothing contradictory between them, I don't think, and this could easily be set just after the first or second of those. Those movies move beyond simple comedy into smart satires about modern perceptions of these classic decades-old heroes, and modern cynicism seeping into those stories. I never thought I'd see a movie intended for children dealing with public fears of a fascist Superman, much less that I'd still find that movie lighthearted and perfectly suited for kids. This movie doesn't do anything so clever or groundbreaking, but it's a great starting place, serving mostly to establish the look and tone of this world for projects to come. The first LEGO Batman game does some of that, but this adds a voice cast and expands it to Metropolis and the Justice League Watchtower, and releasing it as a movie delivers all of that to audiences that haven't played the games. 
At first glance, this might sound like a really lame and cheap money-milking ploy. You take the scenes you've already rendered for a cookie-cutter narrative to set an action puzzle game around, repackage it like a new movie, and you're able to double-dip into two markets. And if it felt thrown together and there were no new scenes, that's exactly what this would be. But the new scenes are seamlessly integrated, and as much care is taken with those as the ones that made it into the game. I might have made it a little clearer on the front of the box that this is the story of that game, and that you're buying some previously released material. That information is on the back. And I would have axed the DC Superheroes Unite title as it's much less appropriate for the movie version on account of the Justice League showing up in the last seven minutes and feeling like they're only here because they're advertised in the title and it's a story about teamwork. Sure, it's at least seeded by Batman's conversation with Martian Manhunter toward the beginning, but this is really a bona fide Batman-Superman story. This seems to take a lot of its cues from the world's finest three-part Superman episode slash movie, and the real reason they're here is so you can play as those characters in the video game. Except Manhunter, but that was rectified in the sequel. And I imagine the game designers and filmmakers didn't want to have to change the ending. That's also why the other Arkham villains are here. They don't really serve this story and easily could have been cut, but it's harder to stretch the material to 70 minutes without them, and you'd be depriving your audience from some fun chases and vocal performances and characters that they might have wanted to see here. It's obviously a plot designed for interactive gameplay, but it does the best it can to tell a complete, if not somewhat thin, story and to not take the audience out with moments that feel like they belong in a video game. I think it manages that as well as can be expected. It's Lego versions of classic characters. I'm naturally going to expect a comedy and a lot of parody, and all it needs to do to be successful, I think, is make me laugh and take full advantage of the license it's based on. And again, convince me it can exist outside of the Xbox 360. But it goes even farther than that, though I can't credit this movie version more than the game because I think it's mostly all there too, but this isn't just a bunch of silly stuff that happens around a standard supervillain team-up plot, it is a real story with a real character arc for Batman. Maybe the obvious arc that's a little overly spelled out at the end, and it's a less complex version of the same arc he goes through in World's Finest, but it's there, and that wasn't a given. Not only was I mostly won over by the idea of using cutscenes as a starting place to develop a whole movie, it made me want to see more video games given this treatment. Video game cinematics are, more and more, rivaling the CG animation work we see in the best 3D animated films, and even surpassing them. As I've discussed in the Arkham Game Rewinds, video games have become a legitimate story medium, and we're starting to get past some of the initial growing pains in experimenting with a medium that's still in relative infancy, much like the early days of comics struggling with how much written exposition was necessary to communicate action in a visual medium. Sometimes video games can get confused about their purpose. What does a game most want to do? Tell a story? or provide a fun and challenging interactive experience. Both are possible, and neither necessarily needs the other element. But if the experience is meant to trump the story, it doesn't need to be more than a simple framework, and can get really intrusive if it keeps encroaching upon gameplay, pretending like it's a compelling narrative with a more complex protagonist than it really has. The Night sequel on the Wii has that problem. I don't care about anything that irritating Owl keeps expositing. I just want to fly through rings. And yes, there are some games where that's actually a fun activity. The sweet spot in narrative games is when the interactive component feels necessary to the storytelling process. Some straightforward games have this because of the sense of urgency created by putting you in the driver's seat. And it would be next to impossible to give an RPG like Mass Effect this treatment because the story changes depending on what choices you make. But there are lots of games, like Arkham City, that have you play through a great story and doesn't interrupt the interesting parts with cutscenes that's perfectly adaptable to other media. 
It works really well with something like LEGO Batman because this story is so simple and none of its progression happens during the gameplay. A lot of games are really expansive and even without gameplay to include all the world building and exposition you'd lose from not running around and exploring the world, you'd probably end up with a four or five hour movie, but this made me want to see other games get this treatment. If you don't have 20 plus hours to put into a game or you don't care for the medium in consuming your fiction, you might miss out on some wonderful stories. Like folks who don't read comics because they just don't like the experience of getting a narrative through what feels like a glorified storyboard. So much of the work is already done because of the breathtaking cinematics that look big screen worthy, like the new God of War. It makes me wonder why we bother trying to make movies based on video games sometimes and why we don't just turn more video games into movies. That's not to say that some of them don't deserve the live-action treatment and that that's not a really interesting experiment. I get why we keep attempting that, but a lot of the stories are just there already. There's so much of a market for it that there are YouTube channels that only post movie-length distillation of games, so people can enjoy the story without having to play through it. I used one of those when I wrote the Arkham City review, I played the game too, and watching this movie felt a little like one of those, except it doesn't have to fill in with any gameplay. I would probably most recommend this movie on the quality of animation. I love the juxtaposition of the silly material handled with the meticulous care of a dead serious, weighty Batman movie. The effect I found most stunning is the way the water moves around and then drops off the camera as it makes its way into the Batcave. The animators pay such close attention to detail, the Batman's mouth is reflected in the plastic of the underside of his cowl. I also love the architecture. I can see some of the inspirations from past DC iterations for this Wayne Tower and LexCorp, but the game designers have blended several old things into something brand new. And seeing as we're in the world of building blocks, the architecture should be eye-catching and memorable. It's a cross between the Burton and Schumacher looks, and is possibly influenced some by the Arkham games. I especially like the giant Grecian statues of many figs, at least one of which is sticking out its tongue. I'm crediting the game again as much as the movie here, but there's no noticeable drop in quality with the added scenes, and it becomes a treat for the eyes that requires no controller. There are just a couple places where I feel like I'm looking at cutscenes rather than a movie. Right after the Man of the Year ceremony, there's a quick cut to black that feels like there's supposed to be a gameplay section, and the editor couldn't come up with a seamless transition. And we're introduced to the Batcave the way we would be in a video game, not a movie, because this is the scene from the game, of course, hovering around each major section to give the player a sense of layout when he's given control and starts exploring. That pays off okay when Joker and Lex show up later and blow up all the vehicles and gadgets, but it still took me out a little. My second favorite aspect of this movie is how the story is built around the physical rules of a Lego universe. It's not a generic Batman adventure using this aesthetic. It's a DC universe that knows it's made of building blocks. Lex and Joker team up to take out Batman and Superman simultaneously with a weapon that exploits the weaknesses of both, a machine called the Deconstructor. It's powered by kryptonite and it destroys Batman's indestructible shiny black objects. That's precisely the sort of absurd master plan I would want to see in a thing like this. The stakes are also amusingly different from our usual flesh-and-blood heroes. The movie is totally aware that its characters are made of plastic, can come apart and be put back together, and that they don't bleed. One of the funniest moments is when Robin, pleading for Batman to call Superman for help, says he's worried they'll break their legs. Batman says, we've broken our legs before, and Robin responds with, yeah, but I didn't like it. The villain's scheme feels like it's dreamed up by kids playing with action figures, and in a different way than in the Lego movies, because these kids seem to be trying to create an authentic Batman comic book adventure. This is kind of like Batman and Robin, except this movie is justified in being a toy commercial, and the characters involved are literally toys that you can buy, and unlike the ones in Batman and Robin, look great and are more fun to play with. 
After Joker demonstrates the effects of his Joker toxin at the Man of the Year ceremony, Lex decides to break him out of Arkham to use his toxin, along with the Deconstructor, to ensure he's elected president. Hilariously, the election is tomorrow, and he suddenly has no chance at beating any of his opponents because he lost Man of the Year to Bruce Wayne. I'd love to know who those opponents are. I have expected the movie to end like the 60s Batman episode, His Honor the Penguin, Dishonor the Penguin, with both political parties offering Bruce or Batman the nomination. Lex's supercomputer, which is never wrong, also tells him the two greatest threats to his conspiracy to mind control everyone to vote for him are Batman and Superman. So with less than 24 hours to spare, he and the Joker work to take out both heroes and manipulate the masses at the same time. Joker claims he's only in it to get to play with the Deconstructor and to obliterate Batman, who is apparently made of the same indestructible shiny black bricks all his gadgets are, and keeps asking if he can be vice president. But of course, he's playing dumb, and he ultimately double-crosses Lex, planning to use his toxin to make the masses vote for him for president. I found this Joker to be a watered-down and much less funny version of Mark Hamill's, but I liked him a lot better when I realized he was smarter than he was letting on, and, like the Joker in World's Finest, often pretends like he's absent-minded and making things up as he goes along when everything he does is carefully calculated. He uses his assumed insanity to make people underestimate him, and it's also a joke unto itself. I like how Joker's double cross is seated during his entrance, as he's campaigning to be Man of the Year, with funny reasons like his constant improvements to the city, and saying that the citizens have always shown their appreciation, showing footage of people on Joker gas, and that even telegraphs how he plans on becoming president. And like with a lot of Joker plots, it's hard to tell if raiding the ceremony was an intentional ploy to catch Lex's attention, or if he just took an opportunity presented to him. He seems surprised when Lex shows up at Arkham to spring him out, and unlike a lot of versions, doesn't seem to want to be there at all. But that may all be an act, too. Even for this silly Lego world, I think it's odd to change the Joker talks into a mind-control device just to contrive this plot, but otherwise, it's a really fun and clever scheme. While Joker is watered down a little more than I think he needs to be, I think he could be more sadistic since his victims can't bleed, Lex is just the DC animated universe version in a Lego world, and voiced by Clancy Brown, the only DCAU actor to reprise a character here. He incorrectly assumes he can control the Joker just like in World's Finest, and his attempt at manipulating a supposed teammate rather than truly working with someone toward a common goal is his ultimate downfall. Except, of course, there's no working with the Joker at all, so some of that is just arrogance and poor judgment in character. I always question whether it's ever believable that a grandmaster chess player like Lex Luthor would ever be dumb enough to work with an unpredictable psychopath whose motives he can't exploit, but it works here because it makes fun of that and everybody's got more kiddish logic anyway. While the Joker's contradiction about wanting to kill Batman and then saying he wouldn't have anyone to play with without him turns out to be part of his deception, Lex has one that doesn't make sense to me at all. His computer tells him he needs to eliminate Superman and Batman, but once he has the Joker on board, he's only interested in taking out Superman. That may be because now that he has the ultimate Batman ending weapon, he's not concerned about him, but it watches more like he cared about that early on, and then the Joker has to deceive him about his motives, so now he's lukewarm on killing him. Or at least pulling his limbs apart for a while. The way Lex and Joker break into the Batcave is legitimately clever, though, and I could see a version of this playing out in a serious Batman story. Lex and the Joker break into Ace Chemicals and steal compounds to approximate kryptonite. It's only 85% pure, a percentage that would make Walter White blush, and it doesn't hurt Superman. 
They use it as a homing beacon to lure them to the Batcave after Batman analyzes it. And they have a built-in way to break in thanks to the Deconstructor, so we don't have to make up some lame contrivance so they can gain entry. This plays into Batman's main weakness in the story and the thematic crux of the movie. He doesn't trust anyone, and without that cynicism, the villains wouldn't have thought to use fake kryptonite to lead them to his real stash, which he keeps in case Superman decides to be a bad guy someday. Precisely the line my six-year-old would have given him if creating the scenario with action figures. I don't know how they know for sure Batman has kryptonite, but I like that his distrust of people directly leads to his losing this battle, not to mention all the wanton destruction they cause with the kryptonite. But it's also understandable that Batman is prepared for emergencies. After all, there are lots of ways Superman could become a bad guy, but the fact that he said decides to tells you he has real trust issues. It's not just about a powerful man who could be compromised in a world of mind control. I like that while Batman agrees he needs help now and then in the last scene, he doesn't go as far as to promise to stop stockpiling kryptonite or anything so extreme. He's the same person, he just has a lot of proof that he can rely on his friends, just as they rely on him throughout the movie. And I can't believe I'm dealing with some of these ideas in a Lego movie. I mean, sure, Batman's feelings and worldview don't come from any place other than his typical modern characterization. There's zero talk about the experiences he's had that lead him to this place. And we can assume them, but it's a new and comedic iteration, so it does feel arbitrary, as does Superman's. But I take back what I said earlier. This movie isn't as satirical as the Lego Justice League movies will be, but it's already tackling some of those shades of gray, albeit with derivative material. I like that the main reason Batman learns to accept help from others is because he walks a few feet in Superman's shoes. He does this in two ways. First, he and Superman literally switch places, in a delightful surprise in which we see the two of them pull off their own legs to simulate changing pants that tickles my absurdist sensibilities. Lex drops a machine on who we think is Batman, and we soon discover it's Superman dressed as Batman, which gives him an opportunity to face his own limitations. I complain about this device a lot, but I don't like that the movie opens with Batman and Superman walking into Lex's trap, only to jump us back to the beginning of the story. Because A, the reveal that they've switched places plays fine without that, and B, the scene doesn't play the same way the second time around. They have dialogue in the beginning they don't and can't have later, because they aren't wearing each other's clothes in the opening scene. It's just Batman and Superman. They have the voices of the characters they're supposed to be pretending to be. That's cheating. And I'm a lot more likely to notice it with 50 minutes in between than I am after several hours of gameplay. And secondly, Batman has to play Superman to save Superman when he's weakened by kryptonite and ironically plummets to his doom. He realizes that if someone like Superman can always make it on his own, and since he has too much empathy to just let Superman die or uh, bust up into reattachable pieces, he can't possibly get by with just his wits, training, and gadgetry. And all of his stuff is taken away from him. He's brought to his most vulnerable, and I like the comedy in that. For this Batman, vulnerability means not just looking like he isn't self-reliant, but looking stupid, like the humiliation of Superman holding onto his cape, flying him around, or Robin having to drag him back to the Batcave on the back of his motorcycle, his head held low in shame. He shares a degree of vanity with Will Arnett's Batman, and while I feel the same about this Robin I do about this Joker, he's also unnecessarily dumbed down and is the more generic translation of his duo. I like that he's constantly encouraging Batman to accept help when he's the midpoint between Batman and Superman, looks up to both of them, and sees both as important but different entities. Robin doesn't have Batman's self-reliance or Superman's lack of worry, but he does have Superman's optimism and Batman's 
well, this Robin is kind of just hanging around and we don't really know how he got there, so I guess I can assume he understands Batman's tragedy if he has any, but I don't know just based on this. Another thing that's overly spelled out by the end is a bit early on that I like, but I think I would have picked up on all by my lonesome, which is that Bruce Wayne makes a speech when he's named Man of the Year about working together, and his alter ego spins the whole movie spouting the opposite. I like the idea that Batman pretends to be the more positive, trusting person he is at the end early on to deflect suspicion that he's Batman. That suggests that deep down, he already knows what he's saying is Bruce Wayne, contrasted with Lex, who pretends to be a team player, but deep down is just out for himself. Throughout the film, he compliments the Joker on a job well done, while Batman never tells his sidekick that he's done well until the very end. Lex is just glad he's getting what he wants. When Batman finally compliments Robin, he means it, and a part of him always wanted to say it. Well, maybe not. This Robin is pretty incompetent and has no detective skills whatsoever, which is weird because his costume is more like Tim Drake's than any other Robin. Batman and Superman both define themselves by a single catchphrase that turns out to be their main weakness. Batman's is, you can't rely on anyone, and Superman's is, I don't worry about anything. He also has a secondary one, I can do anything, which is related and turns out, of course, not to be true. Batman turns away from his mantra to some degree by the end, but it's hard to tell if Superman has really learned anything. It's Batman's movie, sure, but he has such a clear character arc too and seems to maybe remain stagnant because he's a plot device to keep Batman moving through his arc. When Batman's lesson is spelled out at the end, and by Superman, it's weird that Batman doesn't call him on it and remind him that he was pretty smug about his own abilities as well. And while I'm criticizing Batman, it's also odd that at the beginning of the movie, he acts like the Justice League knows his secret identity. But there's a moment at the end where he seems to be concealing it from them. He talks to Martian Manhunter as Bruce Wayne, calling himself Batman. But later, as the giant Joker mech attacks Wayne Tower, he's hesitant in saying he knows his way around, like he's trying to avoid any of them figuring out his identity. Of course, the movie is replete with references and callbacks to other Batman lore, mostly screen versions, and while there's nothing like as many Easter eggs and nods as the Lego Batman movie, there are some memorable ones beyond story bits it's straight up adapting, like President Lex and Kryptonite in the Batcave. The most inspired is the recreation of the Batman 89 opening, which I discussed when I talked about the 89 titles in the Top 10 Titles Rewind. I also like Joker fiddling with a detonator before bombs finally go off, like in The Dark Knight, and Robin not being able to make a jump with his motorcycle, like in Batman Forever. I laughed a lot, but there are a number of jokes that just don't play, like when the Joker says, You like pie? Ah, forget it. He just doesn't commit to the gag? I don't understand why that's supposed to be funny. And while I love that opening with the Elfman music, I'd have preferred a new score for this movie version than mostly reusing the 89 score. I also wish the game hadn't done that again, the first one did that, but it takes me out even more when it's accompanying a whole movie and I associate that music with other scenes. Sometimes the music is used in similar scenes to what it's intended for. When the Batwing gets downed, for instance, we're listening to the music where that happens in the third act in 89, but several tracks are repeated within the 70 minutes, and the original score, while it fits well and harkens back to Elfman's main theme occasionally, is also repetitive and there's not enough of it. Lastly, a couple surprise casting choices that are notable to me. Rob Paulson is a perfect choice for a really cartoony Riddler, and as with all his roles, his voice is instantly recognizable but totally right. I would never have thought of him for that role, but now that I've heard it, I'd love to hear him in a Riddler-centric story. I was really excited when I saw Townsend Coleman's name in the opening titles. 
He's the voice of the animated Tick. Unlike Paulson, he modulates his voice to be almost totally unrecognizable. He's good, but a little wasted in the role. It could have been anybody. It's also crazy to consider that Troy Baker has frequently voiced versions of both Batman and the Joker now, and no offense to Christopher Corey Smith, who plays the Joker here, but I can't help but wish Baker was voicing both of them for this material. He's already Two-Face and Brainiac besides. Oh yeah, and Brainiac shows up at the end to set up the next game. Because it's a Justice League thing, so naturally the big, ostensibly goosebumps-inducing epilogue tease is Brainiac. If I had a two-sided coin for every time we did that. It's a missed opportunity that with a weapon called the Deconstructor, we're not delving more into Batman's psychology, at least to understand why he's such a loner in the first place. And the Lego Batman movie, while about a different Batman, tells a similar story in a more compelling way, but for a story intended primarily as a video game framework, I'm impressed there's as much here as there is. And I can't believe I had as much to write about as I did. As a video game, I'd give this a higher score, but I'm going to give the movie version a 2.5 out of 4. Bye. Bye.